Welcome to Shofar Ronnebosch Sermon Podcast. We trust that today's message will edify and strengthen your faith. Morning everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Johannes Neumann. That's my family up there. So my wife Tara and our eldest Aaron and our youngest Jonathan. These days it's quite difficult to get four people to look at the camera at the same time moment in time, so I think you've got three out of four there. It's not a, an innate-grade type of photo. We need a booker again. If you ever want a professional to uh, take photos of you, book an A. She's wonderful. And uh, Andrea as well. Oh, sorry, Andrea's not involved in family shoots. But um, so, yeah, so these two boys are quite industrious. They uh, have been keeping us busy for almost four years now. Um, Aaron essentially came out of the womb with his first project, and that was the social science project. Um, essentially, it is, well, let me, before I tell you what it is, he started immediately. Um, he carried on for about two years and nine months, and uh, then his brother was born. For three months, he did a proper handover <laughs> to his brother, and then when he turned three, he decided to start sleeping through the night. And his brother, having had this fantastic example for three months, just took over took to it like a duck to water. So essentially, my wife and I have been guinea pigs in an experiment now for almost just over three and a half years. And the experiment is essentially, how long can an adult human specimen survive on zero to little sleep before they forget their own name, their spouse's name, before they eventually just capitulate? And um, so if I seem tired, you know why, I'm part of a project. that my two boys decided to, to enter into. But it's amazing. It's the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. And uh, all parents here will know that you cannot love anyone as much as you love your kids. And it's just another revelation of our Father's love for us. So uh, without further ado, let me jump into the message, which I've entitled, The Troika of a High Impact Life. So uh, one or two people this morning asked me what a troika is, and maybe it wasn't the best choice of words, but um, it's got nothing to do with an airplane, by the way, (laughs) or the 737 MAX fleet that's been grounded, so don't worry. Essentially, a troika is an old Russian-type vehicle, sleigh-like, and it refers to the harnessing system where three horses are harnessed alongside each other, so three abreast. And uh, so you have to take that picture in your mind. Today, I want to talk about the three horses harnessed alongside each other, which I believe are required in order to live a high-impact life. And we are allowed to live a high-impact life. We should live a high-impact life. There's nothing wrong with material success. There's nothing wrong with spiritual success. There's nothing wrong with growing and having success. In Genesis 37, we see that Joseph was successful because God was with him. It literally says that. So God is not against success. We want to make a dent in this universe. You want to know that your life matters. As Christians, living a surrendered life to God, so that's just the preamble to this message. We know that that impact should include God. It should be all about God. It should be an impact to make His name famous, to bring about His kingdom, which He does through us. So that's, that's the background of this high impact that we're searching for, an impact that makes a dent, not in this world, but also in the heavenly realms. So we're in this season of life and this time um, generation that's essentially 
it's a microwave mentality. So everything needs to be sorted now. If it doesn't work within the first few seconds, then I'm going to abandon it and I'm going to try something else. We've got seven-minute abs, which has never worked for me. 700-minute abs don't even work for me. Um, you've got 30-second breathing exercises. You've got seven steps to wealth. You've got three steps of whatever. Um, the point is that we, we want quick fixes in this life. And the advice I'm going to give you today has got nothing to do with, with a quick fix. James Joyce, in his novel Ulysses, it was um, published in 1922, he wrote a phrase, a sentence in that book, which says that the longest way round is the shortest way home. So think about that while I have some water. So many times in life, we don't want to do what will take time. We don't want to do see incremental gain. We want something that's going to give us a shortcut to success. But it, most of the time, those shortcut, shortcuts actually lead to round tripping. It leads to problems that needs to be fixed. If we could just apply the small basic things daily, then actually it might be the shortest way home. So it's more like Aesop's fable, the, the hare and the tortoise, and it's, this is more tortoise-like advice. So uh, brace yourselves for that. So as I speak about these three horses of the Stroika, um, just keep that picture in mind. So if they are harnessed alongside each other, we should be enabled and position ourselves to be in a place where we can have high impact for God in this world and in his kingdom. So the first horse is stewardship. So I'm optimistic and I'm thinking I only lost 50% of you when I said stewardship because talking about unsexy topics, stewardship is probably not one of the sexiest topics you've come across. But I'm very passionate about it, so I'm just going to ignore the fact that you might not be enthralled by this. So let me tell you what stewardship is, at least according to one of the online dictionaries that I found. It says, it's the activity or job of protecting and being responsible for something. The office duties and obligations of a steward, the conducting, supervising, or managing of something, especially the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. So why do I talk about it? Why, why do I see this as important? I see it as important because of Psalms 24, verse 1 to 2, which says the following. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Everything that we have, everything that we see around us, everything belongs to God. Have you ever thought about that? The money in your account you don't own, you're a steward of it. You've been entrusted with it. Jason, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you're just a steward of that Audi. It's an amazing opportunity, and I know you, you definitely get it. But we are stewards of material resources that God has given us, spiritual resources, emotional resources. We don't own anything. So that means we need to know what stewardship is. We need to start becoming passionate about it. And um, we need to ask God what we need to steward. So if you go to Genesis 2, verse 15 to 18, it says the following. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord, Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat you shall surely die. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So if you look at that, you can see that firstly God gave man the commission to work in the garden. And I've spoken about this before. I'm very passionate about the fact that work is intrinsically good. It was given to man before sin entered humanity. So work is not, we're not working and grafting away because of sin. No, we are working because God instructed us to work. He wants us to be productive. He wants us to labor and to put our labor to good effort and to good impact. So also another little bit of a pro tip number one or two is that work is from God and we're supposed to live out and we can live out the fullness of our calling in whatever work we do. So when you work, you accumulate wealth, you accumulate income, there's a harvest. It's a natural product of work. So one of the types of capital, and I'll explain capital now, but one of the types of capital that I believe God wants us to steward is economic capital. And by the way, these terms haven't been coined by me. They were coined by an old wise man I got to know um, in America, Pete Oaks, and I'll speak about him later. Secondly, you see there, so get back to economic capital. Economic capital, easy to understand. I'm not going to spend too much time on it now. It's the material resources that you've been blessed with and entrusted with. Then you see that God speaks about the fact that it's not good for Adam to be alone. I know that Johannes is saying amen to that right now. We are expectant. Um, so, okay. We are expectant to see where you guys are going as a couple. Okay? That's all. That's all I meant. Sorry, Megan. Okay. So, to get back to the point there, the second type of capital that God wants us to steward is social capital. We are irreducibly social beings. When you listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he speaks about the fact that we are salt and light. The analogy of the light, what he speaks about is a shining city on a hill. It doesn't speak to an individual or an individual concept. He speaks to a collective. We are supposed to be in relationship in this world. Then he goes on and he speaks about salt. And whenever I heard this growing up, I always thought that, okay, I get it. Salt is a seasoning, and we use salt to flavor food. So I'm supposed to be the flavor of Jesus wherever I go. But then I listened to a Tim Keller sermon once, and um, he said something that was so obvious, but it hit me between the eyes. In that time, in that day and age, salt's primary use was not flavoring, it was preservation. So when Jesus mentioned salt, he was talking to us and asking us to be a preservative. Whenever we look around us, wherever we look around us, we see entropy. Things are moving into chaos. If things are left on their own, they move into a state of chaos. The world, the universe, our bodies, if we don't look after it, our relationships especially. So we call to enter into relationship, whether it is in our home, whether it is at work, in our church, and wherever we go, we call to stop the rot, the decay. We call to preserve relationships. That is what Jesus meant, I believe, primarily when he said we should be salt in this world. And we're not supposed to do it alone, referring back to the light analogy. We are city on a hill. We are collective. So the second type of capital 
that we need to build and steward in this life, social capital. Thirdly, he speaks about a moral code. He speaks about the fact that Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he speaks about a moral code. There's a moral code that we need to adhere to. And that is spiritual capital. So that's the third type of capital that I believe God wants us to build and steward. So to sum it up, it's social capital, economic capital, and spiritual capital that I believe God wants us to build and steward in this life. So if you think about it, when we, when we talk about poverty, we're talking about lack. When we talk about wealth, we're talking about more than enough. When we talk about capital, we're essentially talking about investable wealth. So it's, it's wealth that is being invested. So when I talk about social capital, spiritual capital, and economic capital, I'm talking about investable wealth. I'm talking about us taking risk. Because when you invest, intrinsic to an investment process, inherent to it, is risk. You take risk when you invest. So we need to know that we are called upon to take risk socially, economically, and spiritually. Not recklessly, but with God alongside us. If you think about Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, the only difference between the first two stewards and the third steward was that the third steward didn't go and trade with the talents that he was given. He did nothing. He didn't need to apply faith. He didn't step out in faith. He could get along living a life of unbelief and no faith because he didn't put anything at risk. If you think about the master's reward and his praise for the first two stewards, exactly the same. The one took five talents, he made it ten. The other one took two talents, he made it four. So we would expect the one that made ten talents and added five to receive a higher reward, but no, he didn't because God doesn't bless or reward the output, it's the input. It's the input. It's just as difficult to multiply two talents than it is to multiply five talents. And it is that trading, that putting at risk what you've been entrusted with, that God blesses. Because you cannot do it without taking risk, which means that you need to put your faith somewhere, and God obviously wants you to put that faith in Him. So, we also need to remember that sometimes we think that we don't have enough, or God didn't give us enough, and we look around, I'll get back to this later, look at other people. Even this third steward got enough. He got one talent. A talent, the Hebrew term for talent is a kikar. It was a unit of measurement of weight, the largest unit of measurement, um, approximately 34 kilograms. Usually it was a round disc, usually made of gold. I looked yesterday, if you look at the reigning gold price, the one steward that got one talent would have sat with $1.4 million in today's terms, in his lap, or 20 million rands, if you want to South Africanize the parable. I think you can agree with me that 20 million rands is more than enough to steward wisely and more than enough for you to also get along with and buy with and buy on. Okay. So just something to, that I found interesting, because sometimes we pity the third steward and we think that um, God dealt, or the master in this case, dealt harshly with him, but um, not really. So, I want to tell you about Pete Oakes. So, Pete Oakes is a guy that I met a year or two ago, late 60s, early 70s, American entrepreneur. He coined these three phrases. Um, so, it's, like I said, not my IP. But um, 
what he, he's an entrepreneur, he owns businesses. And um, one business that he owns is called Seat King. It manufactures upholstered seats for the car, vehicle industry, motor vehicle industry. It's a straightforward process, but it's quite labor intensive. So he lives in Kansas and close to a maximum security prison. And he felt God saying that he needs to go and put up shop behind the walls of this maximum security prison. So he went and he did it. At the time, the inmates there were, it was considered to be one of the worst prisons in that state and in America. He put up shop there, he started walking with them, employing them, and essentially he has a few hundred, if not a thousand inmates working for him daily. And the fruit of it is amazing. But he led, he went in there and he led with economic capital, social capital, and eventually he had the trust to share and bring across and transfer spiritual capital. In our own lives, when we think about our own personal lives, what, what should we focus on primarily? I think we can all agree that it's spiritual capital. So our spiritual capital, our walk with God, we need to focus on. And our walk with God and growing in that spiritual capital, that will inform us as to how we should invest and grow, build and steward our economic capital and our social capital. But many times we try and apply the same theory when we reach out to people in the world, when we build relationship. We want to reach out and we want to lead with spiritual capital. We want to hit them over the head with a verse or two or tell them something Christianese and then expect them not to feel weirded out and not to run away. But sometimes, most of the time I think, we actually call to lead with economic and or social capital when we reach out to people around us before we then look to transfer spiritual capital to them. What happened in this prison, these guys before Pete set up his business there, they were earning, doing odd jobs, earning 50 cents a day. It cost them 17 cents a minute to phone home. So if you're earning 50 cents a day and it's costing you 17 cents a minute to phone home, you're either not going to phone home or you're going to get 2.9 something minutes with family every day to speak with them, to build relationship with your kids, your siblings, your parents, your spouse sitting outside and waiting for you. So that doesn't happen or it doesn't happen adequately. So there's no economic capital. You don't have economic capital if you're earning 50 cents a day, whether it's US or RAND. There's no social capital because you're not investing in it. Because of that, you're in a desperate, desolate state, disillusioned, and you don't have the capacity to even consider spiritual capital, anything else. You're in desperation, you're hopeless. What Pete did was employed them, started paying them $80 a day, went from 50 cents to $80 a day. All of a sudden, for their efforts, they got rewarded. They stood up a little bit straighter. They felt more confident. They had economic capital. Because of that, they could phone home more often. They built social capital with their siblings, their wives, their husbands, now it's a male prison, their, their wives at home, and their kids, parents, etc. You get the point. They built social capital. The hopelessness was taken away, filled with hope, and now Peter's busy discipling them, talking to them about Jesus, going to church with them on a Sunday. And there's a transference of spiritual capital that they're ready to receive now because the trust is there. We always think that it's, it's either one or the other. God, when he comes, 
and he ministers to us, he ministers to our emotions, our physical needs, and our spiritual needs. If you think about Jeremiah in the desert, he was visited upon by the angels, and he was first fed. God first looked after, sorry, not Jeremiah, um, Elijah, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Um, so I knew that sounded wrong. So Elijah in the desert, when he was running away, he was desperate and he was despondent. The angels visited him and they fed him first. And after that, God started speaking to him and addressing his emotional and his spiritual needs. So keep that in mind because sometimes, most of the time, I think we need to lead with one of the other two capitals before we take spiritual capital out when we interact with the world. We also tend to measure outputs. That's why we wired. And if something's not measured, it doesn't happen. We know all of that. And a lot of that is true. But if we focus on the wrong thing to measure, it can also have adverse effects. So if you think about social capital specifically, economic capital is easier to measure outputs. But think about spiritual capital and social capital. If you invest all the time, energy into a relationship, a friendship, you're praying for someone, you're trusting God for breakthrough, um, and you're not seeing the output, and your definition of whether you're winning at this is the output, and you're not seeing anything, you're going to become disillusioned, you're going to become despondent, and you're going to put yourself in the perfect position to be offended. So if I invest social capital into a friendship, I've got no control over whether or not it will reciprocate, whether it will be reciprocated. I do not have any control over that person turning around and doing the same and building a friendship with me. I've got no control over it. And if I measure that output, I'll become offended with the person because I'm looking at something that I don't have any control over and I'm trying to, to measure that. What I should be measuring is my inputs. Am I obedient? Am I spending the time with the people I need to be spending time with? Am I praying for the right people? Am I praying to God about things that's on His heart? And those inputs you can measure. And if you measure those inputs and you stop worrying about the output so much, you definitely give yourself a better chance not to become offended so easily and or despondent so, so easily. So that's stewardship. Remember that capital is investable wealth. When you invest, inherently there's risk associated, so you need to take risks. Socially, Building a friendship, it's risky. You make yourself vulnerable. And you, you don't know if, if it will be a friendship in the end. You don't know if your stories and um, your most intimate like emotions, dreams, whatever you've shared will be put on Facebook afterwards. You don't know. Um, and also, if you, if you think about spiritual capital, gifts of the Holy Spirit, if you've got a word of wisdom for someone, a word of knowledge, you need to risk stepping out and giving them that word of knowledge, word of wisdom. You risk being completely off the mark. You risk being completely wrong. So, but if you don't risk, you'll never grow in that gifting. You'll never be able to become more confident in hearing the voice of God if you never step out and test it. So we need to take risk because the master does expect multiplication and productivity, whether it's on the social, economic, or spiritual capital front. So now the second horse in this troika is called generosity. So generosity is a subset of stewardship, but it's such an important element of stewardship that I do believe it requires 
its own horse for the purposes of this analogy, right? So the horse here, generosity. And I want to tell you a tale of two seas, which is actually a tale of two lakes. And um, the dimensions and scaling didn't work perfectly this morning, but forget that. On your left-hand side, I always get this wrong, um, you've got the Dead Sea. On your right-hand side, you've got the Sea of Galilee. So these two seas are 140 kilometers apart from each other, and actually lakes, as I said. But we all know them as seas. I did. I do. So the Dead Sea is a saltwater lake. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. The Sea of Galilee has got some of the most abundant fauna and flora living in it. It has supported a commercial fishing industry for more than 2,000 years, supplying food and income and abundance to millions of people over those 2,000 years. The Sea of Galilee is not called the Dead Sea by accident. There's no fauna and flora. There's some microbial life, bacteria and fungi growing there, but essentially it doesn't give life. It doesn't give life. I know you pay hundreds of rands for skin products that I've got some Dead Sea mud in it, and maybe that helps a little. But you get the picture here. There's no life. There's no abundance in the Dead Sea. Now, the only difference between these two seas is one fact. The Sea of Galilee has got an inlet and an outlet. The Dead Sea only has an inlet and no outlet. So the one sea gives whatever it receives and it leads to life. It's life-giving to the communities living around it, to the fauna and flora in the sea. The other sea receives but does not give. And what ends up happening, the sea has a 33-odd percent salt content and nothing really lives in there. You can read a few books while tanning, lying on the water, um, floating. But that's about the joy and the mud, of course, that you're going to get out of the sea. And then what blew my mind a few days ago when I realized this is the fact that the inlet for, into the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. The Dead Sea's inlet is the Jordan River. It, it blew my mind. It's the same river from the same source, the same water flowing into two lakes. The one gives what it receives, and I'm not going to belabor that again. You see the result. The other one just takes, 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 and doesn't give away. And once again, you see the results. It's astounding. You can receive the same blessing, the same opportunities, the same resources, two people. The one person's life will give life to those around him or her. The other person's life will not give that because they're hoarding and not giving away. So, the, bless you, Matthew. Um, so the Jewish culture also has a ceremony that they call the Havdalah ceremony. Havdalah, the word means separation. And essentially it's performed at the end of the Sabbath on a Saturday to separate the Sabbath from the rest of the following week. In this, during the ceremony, they take a cup, they put a saucer underneath it, they pour wine in until overflow, and then the overflow flows into a saucer. And they ask and trust that God will provide for them and their family in this week coming up, but also give them more than enough till overflow so that they can bless those around them. And the symbolism behind it for me is quite 
it's quite cool. The fact that you remind yourself constantly that you, firstly, it's more blessed to, to give than to receive and that you need to give. Because you can survive on what you receive, but you cannot thrive. You thrive on what you give, I believe. So we also sometimes think that it's wrong because now, for example, in the ceremony, it's all about the family and the household first, and then with the overflow you give. But um, before you get too super spiritual on me, 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So there is, spiritually, there is, it's a good discipline to look after your family and your household and to give from the overflow. We're going to get to the tithe later, which, before you get too happy. Um, so what you need to decide here is essentially how big is your cup. If you keep this Havdalah ceremony in mind, how big is that cup? Because if your cup is a swimming pool, there's going to be very little overflow, if any, which means that you're only going to look after yourself and your household, and your household's going to live in excess, which is also not what God wants. And if your cup is so small that your household is completely and constantly in lack, but you're giving away to the world, I don't believe that is what God wants either. If you look at 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, which we just read now, I don't think that is what God had in mind. So it's between you and God as to what size your cup is. It's something you need to go and speak to God about, and He will tell you. But you need to go and find out for yourself, and if you're in a family environment for your family, what is the size of our cup? Because once that's set and the overflow comes, it's not for you. It is to bless others. So what do we need to be generous with? We need to be generous with our time, our treasure, and our talents. Put another way, if you think about life as an acronym, we need to be generous with our labor. We need to be generous with the influence that we have. We need to be generous with the financial resources that we have. And we need to be generous with the expertise that we have. And also, if you think about Galatians 6 verse 7, it says, whatever you sow, you will reap. So you sow and you reap in kind. So to boil it down, whatever you want more of in life, you need to sow first. So if you want people to make time for you, you're going to have to sow in time into friendships and relationships. If you want to be mentored, I believe you have to sow in mentoring others. Um, if you want God to bless you materially, once again, as long as the blessing is not idolized and the blessing is not the focus but God, Material blessing is from God. It's good. But you need to sow then financially. You need to give away. And many times you're going to sow in tears. In Psalms 126 verse 5, it says the following. It says that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. So it's not always easy to sow. It's not always easy to give, whether it's your time, your talent, your treasure. But we know that ultimately we will reap in joy. And we don't do these things just because we want to reap a harvest. That is a natural consequence of sowing, is reaping. But we do it because of the calling that we have, because of us living a life with God in gratitude. And I'm going to get to gratitude later, so it'll make sense eventually. But maybe this is a good segue to talk about the tithe. So people get very offended when we talk about Tithing. Many people. Um, outside the church, inside the church, people get offended. Um, we think about 
reasons as to why we need to tithe, um, why is it important, I shouldn't be doing it, uh, it's an old covenant thing. Um, well, to burst your bubble, Abram tithed to Melchizedek a few centuries before the tithe was instituted as law, so the tithe actually predates law. Um, and uh, we need to ask ourselves, why do we ask this question? Uh, what should I tithe? What percentage? Um, is it even relevant? Chris Vallotton from Bethel Church says that um, in 20 years that people have asked them this question, only one person ever asked them with the motive of wanting to pay to give more. Every single other person over 20 years, he always asks them, why do you want to know? And eventually it boils down to, because I want to be able to get away and live with my conscience giving less than 10%. So first and foremost, when we ask this question, we need to ask ourselves, where's our heart? So Leviticus 27 verse 30 says the following, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So we see two things here. 10% of all income is to be given to God. And whatever is given to God becomes holy. It's amazing. Think about it. You can take money, 100 rand that was used to buy drugs. You can tithe it when you receive it legitimately, not because of the drug trade. Um, that just transaction that just happened. You can tithe it. It immediately becomes holy. Money is amoral. The morality of money is in the hand of the beholder. Money itself is amoral. It's the, the root of evil is the love of money, not money. So one pastor once said that um, a drug addict or a dealer came to salvation um, and tithed a lot of drug money to the church, and a lot of the churchgoers were offended. How can we take this money? This is drug money. The pastor said, don't worry. We'll lay hands on it and spend the hell out of it. <laughs> so just to get the picture, money itself is amoral. When we give it to God, when we give it into the storehouse, it becomes holy. And the tithe was instituted so that the storehouse, the church, and the Levites, the pastors working in the church could conduct their work without worrying about where the resources will come from. They could focus on their primary gifting, which was more pastoral. So we need to, we need to think of it, I think, as a, as a bit of a franchise fee. And that's, that comes from T.D. T. Jakes. He spoke about the tithe as being a franchise fee. So God is the franchisor. He's made available the earth and all its fullness to all of us. We as franchisee, we bring our labor. The franchise agreement is, you can keep 90, but as a royalty, you pay 10%. And are we offended with that? We are very offended with Malachi 3 that says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So people pay around in America, one to two million dollars 
for a McDonald's franchise to own it. Then, perpetually, forever, into, into infinity, they pay 8% of all gross sales as a royalty to McDonald's. That's considered normal. Now, the creator of the universe that knows everything, that owns the cattle in a thousand hills, say, you can keep 90, the royalty is 10%, you don't even have to pay a startup fee or set up costs, and we've got a problem with this. The creator of the universe wants to partner with us. He wants to prepare the soil for us, whether it's soil for you as a farmer, soil, or whether it's the soil at your work, the investments you're involved in. He wants to rebuke the devourer on your behalf. He wants to ensure an environment of growth and gain. But all he's asking for is a partner that keeps to the partnership agreement. And um, we need to start now. It, it doesn't get easier. I can tell you this from personal experience. It does not get easier. And by the way, the tithing segue is not a condemnation segue. Personally, I've missed this for years as an adult and as a Christian. I missed this for years. I was asking the question, why tithe? What percentage? What if I can only give 2% this month? And I was trying to rationalize it because the heart, the mind will always justify what the heart's already chosen. So I'm telling you this as someone that struggled with it and continues to struggle with all of this on a daily basis. I just know now, standing here, that I've never been more convinced of the fact that the tithe has got nothing to do with the law. It's about being in partnership with God and essentially, just also to maybe shatter your paradigm, is that true generosity actually starts post the tithe. So when you get back to the Avdala ceremony, your tithe, I think, is 10% of what's in that cup. Your tithe does not come from the overflow. The overflow is what you give to people around you when you help them, when you buy groceries for them, when you pay for their kids' school fees, whatever you do when you pay for someone to go on missions, that is the overflow. But 10% of what is in that cup is the tithe. It shattered my paradigm, still busy shattering mine, but that's why I can stand here today saying I've missed it, I've missed it many times, but I am truly convinced that this is the first step for us as a Christian when it comes to financial stewardship, something that we need to tick off, and it's elementary, and we need to get on with it and stop being obsessed and offended with the fact that the franchisor of the whole universe wants 10%. So John D. Rockefeller said that I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. So start now, start small. As you earn more, and this principle is not settled in your heart, it's only be going to become more difficult. And don't worry, you cannot outgive God. You absolutely cannot outgive God. So don't worry about that. I don't think any of us will experience that scenario. So the third horse in this troika, pulling along this troika of a life of, of high impact, is contentment. So how much is enough? The same John D. Rockefeller was asked in an interview, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough money? And he said, just a little bit more. And unfortunately, that is, with most of us and society at large, we are discontent. Discontentment is a socially accepted drug, and we don't understand and see how dangerous this thing is. See, if we are discontented, our stewardship will always be suboptimal, our giving will always be suboptimal, because we're more worried and will be more worried with our own contentment and our own needs. So contentness is being happy with what you have. It's not 
having what you want, but wanting what you have. And the enemy of contentment is discontentment. Duh. But maybe not so duh, because we think sometimes it's ambition or success or whatever. It's not. Once again, Genesis refers to Joseph as a successful man because God was with him. So the enemy of contentment is not success or ambition, an ambition tailored by the word of God and not by our own desires. It's discontentment. And there's, there's essentially three stages of discontentment. So if you see it in your life, these are three things. If you, if you expect that it's there or suspect that it's there, then look for these three signs. Firstly, there's jealousy and envy. So when you look at someone and you see their life, their resources, their spiritual walk with the Lord, their social capital, economic capital, spiritual capital, so it's, it's not just material. You see all those types of capital in everyone else's life around you, and there's jealousy or envy. That's the first sign that discontentment has crept into your heart. Jealousy is saying, I want what you have. Envy is the rotten uncle of jealousy that says, I want what you have, and while I don't have it, I don't even want you to have it. So that's envy. Now, the second thing, or the second stage of discontentment is anxiety. As you start comparing and you look around and you get more and more jealous and envious of what other people have, socially, emotionally, materially, you become anxious. You're in a state of perpetual anxiety. You adopt a lack mindset. Nothing is ever enough. You're always worried. And you'll never be happy. And then thirdly, and once you reach this stage, it's quite advanced, you define yourself by what you own. So if you define yourself by what you own, if the newness of stuff defines you, and if you find yourself saying, I will be happy when I purchase that, when I go there, when I go overseas, if you start saying that to yourself and find yourself saying that, then you're probably walking in discontentment. So how do you fight discontentment? Quickly. You don't idolize your stuff. You find your identity in God and not in your stuff. As I said, if your identity is in your stuff and the newness of your stuff, you'll always be on the hamster wheel. You'll always be more worried about your own cup. That cup will grow larger and larger. You won't give as effectively. You won't steward your social, spiritual, and emotional capital as effectively as you can. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your stuff or purchase as long as you know it doesn't bring happiness and as long as you own that piece of stuff and it doesn't own you. And then secondly, stop comparing. A Harvard MBA president, um, one of the students at a graduation speech said that comparison is the death of happiness. Once you start comparing, happiness goes out the window. So for many of us, Facebook is one of the things that actually need to go out the window, social media. Because you're comparing your daily struggles, your ups and downs, with the highlight reel of someone else, which might not even be completely true. And we always try and keep up with the Joneses when we compare. 90% of the Joneses are broke. We don't know that, because we only see the highlight reel. And uh, our lives are so peculiar, our individual lives, that it just doesn't make sense on any level to compare. So don't compare your social capital, your spiritual capital, or your economic capital to, those of, to the people around you. Jesus even had to say that to Peter when he referred to John's spiritual capital and what he will do for him and for the kingdom. So stop comparing. And that's a big message to myself as well. 
And then thirdly, focus on your blessings. We all have blessings. It brings perspective. And that actually brings me to gratitude, which I believe is not the fourth horse. There's only three horses, but it's the harness. So gratitude is that harness into which you order those three horses alongside each other. A harness is used to control an animal, for example. If you have a toddler, maybe a toddler as well, you can buy toddler harnesses and take a lot. I've seen. They're on a good sale now, 100 rand instead of 220, if you need to control the toddler. So with the harness, you control something. With the harness of gratitude, you can activate and control the horses of stewardship, generosity, and contentment each and every day. When your heart is filled with gratitude because of what God has done for you, because of the fact that Jesus has died for your sins, because of the fact that you are loved and accepted, that you will spend eternity with Him instead of in hell, where we all deserve to be, but by God's blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, we can enter the throne room boldly. I mean, that brings gratitude. And if you develop that attitude of gratitude, if every morning you take that harness of gratitude, you put it on those three horses, I believe that if you do that, as the tortoise, daily, continuously, disciplined, in that manner, you will see small advances, small strides. You'll make small strides. But at the end of the day, what you'll do is, you'll sow and reap a legacy that made an impact, a high-impact life, it wasn't a high-impact life because it made your name famous. It was a high-impact life because it made a dent, a dent not just in this universe, but in the kingdom, because it made God's name famous and not your name famous. So someone once said that you should sow a thought to reap an action. Sow an action, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. So if we do this every day, I do believe that we can live a high-impact life. We can build and steward social capital, economic capital, and spiritual capital to the glory of God. And I think and do believe that all of us have been called to, to do this. So if you can stand with me, and if the band can come to the front. I just want to pray for us in closing. there is anyone that do feel like they need prayer because they are struggling with either one of these three horses, if they're struggling with discontentment, if you're struggling with gratitude, if you're just struggling with the fact that you are allowed to live a high-impact life for God, then I invite you to the front for some prayer because I do believe this, this is something we need to enter into every single person on this earth and especially every single Christian need to be able to live this type of life. So let me pray for us. Feel free to come to the front if you do want to. We'll pray for you afterwards. Lord, we thank you that we can come before you today, Father, knowing that we can live a high-impact life for you, Father God. We can live a life that makes a dent in your kingdom and in this universe, Lord. We can make a life, live a life, Lord Father, that makes your name famous, Lord Father. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to live these lives, Lord Father, that you enable us, Father God, that you provide us with economic, social, and spiritual capital for us to do just that, Lord Father. 
Thank you, Father God, that, that as, we, as we put these three horses alongside each other, Lord Father, as we, as we move forward and steward what you've given us, Father God, as we become generous givers, cheerful givers, Lord Father, and as we become contented people, Father God, that are more worried about others than ourselves and our own comfort, Father God, as we fill our hearts, Lord Father, with gratitude because of what you have done for us, Lord, on the cross, Jesus, your obedience unto death on a cross, purchasing life and life in eternity for us. We thank you, Father God, that we can harness what you've given us, Lord Father, that we can use it for your purposes, Father God. Thank you, Lord, that because, like you say of Joseph, because you go with us, we can be successful, Father God, for you, Lord. We thank you, Father God, that you enable us, Lord Father. It's not about us, it's about you, Lord Father, but thank you, Lord, that you use us as vessels, Father, in this world to bring about high impact, Lord Father, in the lives of other people, in the lives of the people we work with, Father, in the lives of our families, Lord, in the lives of our community, Lord. Thank you, Father God, that you go out before us and that you prepare the way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone. Are we going to do a song? Thank you.